0: So it's great to be back together tonight in our study of 1 John. As you know, we're continuing our study through this letter. So if you would, just go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 2. Well, uh, I talked with a number of you, and I know that one of the things that you like to do, and I used to like to do, Um, before I got a little busy, was go hiking. Yeah, this time of year is a great time of year to go hiking, isn't it? The last time I went hiking, I had a baby on my back, so it's kind of overdone. Well, the beauty about where we live in Virginia is that pretty much anybody, unless you have three kids, can go out and hike in an afternoon. Uh, our mountains aren't that intense. Agreed? Maybe some of you are like, "Yeah," from you Floridians are like, "They're pretty intense." Colorado people are like, "No, absolutely not." Well, our mountains are not that are not that intense, and so if if someone were to say, "Hey, we need a guide to to take us on this this trek of Sharp Top," like that'd be that'd be pretty silly, right? So, uh, so it's a bit of overkill, but. Imagine if we were going to hike Everest. That's not an afternoon hike, is it? On average, does anybody know how long it takes to hike to the summit, to trek to the summit? Two months. Two months to get to the summit. That's on, on average. Many months... Even before that, it takes, to, it takes you know, a lot of people are preparing. They've got to prepare mentally, physically, to kind of even get up to the challenge. They have to hike smaller mountains that are still giant um, in comparison to the ones around here to kind of get ready for, for a hike like that. And the, the challenges are severe. Many people have died attempting to hike or, or summit uh, Everest. And you wouldn't dare try that trek without an experienced guide unless you wanted to die. Those guides are called Sherpas. Sherpas. These guides know the Himalayas. They know the threats. They have the experience and skill to help hikers summit to the top of this treacherous peak. And in a way, our discipleship journey is a lot like that trek. And what do I mean by that? Well, over the last few weeks in our study of 1 John, we've learned that Even though we've been redeemed by Christ, we're still in an environment with harsh conditions, spiritually speaking. We're in this fallen world. We're in a world that we used to belong to, but this world is set against God. It's controlled by Satan, John told us in 1 John. It's filled with antichrists, and their objective is to try to deceive people, including God's people. Constant appeals are made to our fallen flesh in this world. And these appeals tempt us to turn away from the Christ who redeemed us. It it, it tempts us to exchange our loyalties from Christ to, to someone else or something else. We're in constant danger with threats on every side. And that is the Christian life. That's the journey of discipleship. That's the narrow way that Christ describes. And yet, we also learn that we're not on our own, are we? We're not abandoned. In this journey, Christ is with us. We have a perfect guide and a perfect map. Last week, we learned that Christ Himself has given us His Spirit, or as John calls it, His anointing. And as we'll see tonight, that very Spirit actively illumines the truth, and He guides us in accordance with the gospel given to us from the apostles. We have a new capacity for the truth. We have a new enablement to obey the Lord because we've been given the promised spirit. And not only do we have the perfect guide, we do, in the Holy Spirit, but we also have the perfect map in Scripture. And in particular, we have the map of 1 John, John's letter to to this church. And you can think of this letter, and specifically the back half of this letter, where we've been and where we're going, you can think of this letter as John's field guide for the dangerous trek of discipleship. It's his strategy for living in the last hour, as he calls it. He helps us recognize the dangers. He helps us avoid the pitfalls. He helps us pursue the right kinds of things. He incentivizes us with his truth. He helps us discern the lies. And he shows us what the path looks like, the path of truth. helps us discern uh, error. And he does this through a number of instructions. We've seen this. This is just kind of by way of review. If you look with me in verse 15 he started this sort of back half this field guide by telling us not to love the world not to love the world he, he alerts us to the pitfalls of a sinful world and tells us to resist the impulses of our flesh towards sin John wants us to remain loyal to Christ not to a world that's set in opposition against him and John incentivizes us right he tells us the world is on its way out you're investing in something that's dying if you're if you're investing in the world in the sinful world but those who obey the lord those who trust him and do his will those those people are going to be raised from the dead they're going to abide forever in the new heavens and the new earth that's what's real john says that's the path and follow it don't be enticed by the world so we looked at that last, last time or a few weeks ago. Then next, he, he helps us navigate the deceptive messages that might be constantly coming at us. So not just the world, but also the Antichrist propaganda. You call it that. These lies that are constantly coming at us, these twistings of the truth. And the best thing that we can do to discern the lies, John says, is to know what's true. So in verse 24, John tells us to let what we've heard abide in us. Let what we've heard abide in us. That was John's second major instruction in this chapter. And this means we need to press into our understanding of truth. We need to continue believing the gospel as it was handed down to us by the apostles. And we need to continue to yield our will, yield our hearts to God's word. And if we continue doing this, John says we're going to stay on track. Okay, So don't love the world and continue in what you've heard. Those are are two instructions he's given. And tonight, John's going to continue with the field guide. I'm going to put it that way. He's going to give us another instruction that's going to help us in our discipleship journey. It's going to propel us toward lasting assurance. Remember, that's the purpose of this letter lasting assurance. And in our text tonight, he's going to tell us to abide in Christ. That's the instruction abide in Christ. John knows that as we learn to cultivate a dependent relationship on Jesus, that this will be our great safeguard to navigating the pitfalls of the world that we're left in. It'll help us navigate the deceptions of the Antichrists and the worldly lusts that surround us. And not only will it help us avoid things, avoid bad fruit, but it will lead to an increasingly productive and increasingly fruitful Increasingly rewarding life for the glory of Christ while we are here will make an impact. So look with me. Let's just read it together. Beginning of verse 26, John says, I write these things to you. This is chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, Just as it has taught you, you abide in him. And now, little children, here's the command abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, this is John's instruction to abide. And as I'm calling our message tonight, just abide in Christ. Uh, we're going to look at cultivating dependence on Jesus. And we're going to, excuse me, we're going to frame up our passage tonight around four statements that's going to help us to abide. Alright? Just, just four statements. I'm going to pull these out um, from the text here. Four statements that are going to help us abide. As we get going, I want you to notice something that's very interesting. You probably picked it up as we read. Uh, it's interesting about this instruction. The command itself, the command to abide, comes all the way down at the end of the paragraph, right? Before John ever tells us to abide in Christ, or he ever commands that, he wants us to make sure that we understand that something else has happened that will enable us to obey this command. What is it? We could say it like this. We are enabled to abide and we're enabled to abide through the Spirit. So the first thing John wants us to see about abiding is that we don't automatically abide by ourselves. The the reason we can abide in Christ progressively is because something else has already happened to us. We've been enabled to abide via the Spirit, and that's really the first thing he wants to to lay down for us. look in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So there's a threat. But the anointing, that's a reference to the Spirit, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. So you don't abide in him. He abides in you, the, the anointing, the Spirit. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. That's interesting. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught, you abide in him. So, before John ever commands us to abide, he wants us to make sure that we understand that we have been enabled to abide by the Spirit himself. So, John starts this paragraph by reminding his readers that people were actively trying to deceive them in verse 26. These, we've looked at this in the past, but you know those people that left the church, they were false teachers in John's assembly, they were still trying to get at the people in that church, even though they had left. Still had influence. And the same is true today. There are many out there in the evangelicalism that are twisting the gospel in these last days. We've looked at that. But what gives John the confidence about these believers that they will stay faithful in the midst of all this? To, for John, the first place he goes is the fact that they have the Spirit. It's the presence of God's Spirit, John says. He essentially says, you have the spirit of the new covenant residing in you. You've been given him freely at your conversion. So that, that means then that if, if you've believed in Jesus, you heard the gospel, convicted of your sin, you yielded to Christ, if that's happened, it's because the spirit has quickened you. It's because that's already happened in your life. The spirit has come to you, quickened you. He made you alive. He opened your eyes. He unstopped your ears, and the third person of the Trinity, John says, remains in you. Now that's a permanent gift. But then he says something kind of kind of weird, right? I know I've talked to you already. A number of you that are already reading through John or First John, you've come to me and asked this question already. So what John says, he that we have no need that anyone should teach us. So what am I doing, right? What, what are we doing here? Is John telling us that we don't need pastors or disciples or anyone to help us understand the truth since we have the Holy Spirit? Well, I doubt it because John himself is taking the time to write this letter to the church. He's actively teaching in this letter, he's actively shepherding them through this letter. So, what does he mean? Well, it helps us to realize that he's alluding to Jeremiah 31 in this passage, in this phrase in particular, with this reference to the teachers, not, not needing anyone to teach you. And he's already alluded to Jeremiah 31 multiple times in this chapter, chapter 2, because this is the, the chapter about the new covenant, the prediction of what will happen when the new covenant comes to, to God's people. Jeremiah Prophet Jeremiah, he predicted a day when God would make a new covenant that was unlike the old covenant that he made with his people. It was a new one. And what would be distinctive about this new covenant that sets it apart from the old is that God would enable his people to obey. He says that he would write the law in their hearts, which was not true under the old covenant. Israel just failed to obey continually because they didn't have the law written on their hearts. Meaning, God himself would teach his people to obey him. And if you look in other prophetic texts, this new covenant, the the way that happens is via God's own spirit coming to God's people. God gives his spirit to his people, uh, brings them to life, and it makes makes them become obedient from the heart. So where does this connect with our passage? Well, the passage in Jeremiah 31 goes on to say this. It says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. We saw the echo back to that, that every single member of the new covenant knows the Lord in the, in the last, last week's message. John brought that out in last week's message. But the point is, they shall no longer each, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. There won't be anybody in the new covenant that doesn't know the Lord. That's very unlike the old covenant. For I will forgive their iniquity. There will be a decisive forgiveness that happens, and I will remember their sin no more. So he makes this interesting statement: You will not need any, you know, any teachers. Nobody will need to teach his neighbor, saying, "Know the Lord." But Jeremiah is going to go on to predict that the Lord is going to raise up new shepherds, plural, not just a single, not just the, the Messiah shepherd, but new, but new shepherds. So Jeremiah himself would acknowledge that there's going to be more shepherds that God will raise up in the future to continue shepherding the people. So his point in this prophecy seems to be that every person will have a personal relationship with Yahweh and so they won't need intermediaries or any kind of go-between for that relationship. John's point here is very similar. They're not dependent on any one person or any human philosophy for access to God and the recognition of His truth. You and I have been given the Spirit. And so we don't know a ton about what was going on in the background of this letter beyond what we see, but it, it could have even been that the false teachers were claiming you have to come through them to get to God. And so John's trying to underscore, no, you have the Holy Spirit who has illumined you, He's already taught you, and He continues to teach you. And the Holy Spirit is our guide too. He's our guide into all truth. He's taught us the truth in our conversion. Again, that's why we believe. And he continues to illumine our understanding as we sit under preaching, as we meditate on the truth, as we apply his word. The Spirit's the great interpreter of Scripture for us. And as encouraging as that is, just kind of point blank, John's point here is that the Spirit's ministry in our lives is precisely why we can abide in Christ in an ongoing way is because, most foundationally, because of the Spirit's ministry to us. And that's in verse 27. Now, just curio- just out of curiosity, how many of you are reading from an ESV? Raise your hand. Now, how many of you are reading from a New American Standard? Raise your hand. Okay. How many are reading from something different? Either one of those. Okay. So if you're reading from the ESV, like I am, in verse 27... So, look down at your Bibles. Verse 27, at the end of that phrase, at the end of of the verse, just as it has taught you, comma, abide in him. That reads like a command, doesn't it? Abide in him. That's how they take this verb. They take it as a command. But if you notice, verse 28, and now little children, abide in him like back-to-back commands to abide. That's how the ESV renders this. But if you're reading from a New American Standard, it's going to translate this as a statement, not as a command. So it will say, but as his anointing teaches you, dot, 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 you know, so you abide in him. Do you see that? Those of you who have a New American Standard, this is the end of verse 27. Just as it has taught you, dot, 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 you abide in him. It's not a command. It's a statement. So the point, I think the way that the, the NASB translates it is how I'm taking it here. That the anointing, the giving of the Spirit to us, is why we abide. Because he's been given to us, therefore we abide. And in Greek, this form of this word can go either way. So it can, be, it can be, have, a, have the force of a command, or it can just be a statement. It depends on the context. Exclusively, it's the exact same form in both both uh, both kinds. So I think it's best here to translate it as a statement, not a command, because he's going to pivot in verse twenty-eight and actually command us. You see that? So there's the command. I think it's a bit redundant if it's, and it, it makes a little bit better sense grammatically to understand it as a as a statement. He's saying essentially that because we have the Spirit the idea. Just as we've received the Spirit, so now we abide. That's why we abide. In other words, we are enabled to abide, like the outline says, we are enabled to abide in Jesus because his Spirit abides in us. Now, that's, you know, that's great, Clay. Interesting, maybe. So why is that significant? Why does John stress this? Well, I think, for one, it takes the pressure off, doesn't it? In a certain way. There is a quiet confidence in the Apostle John. I mean, think about that. People are leaving the church. People are drawing other believers away from them, or believers in quotes, away from them in the church. False teachers coming, ravaging the church. And John's got a quiet confidence that true believers will not ultimately be led astray. There's a quiet confidence that true sheep will persevere ultimately Because of God's life-giving Spirit within them. The Holy Spirit will not ultimately let you fall away. He will not let you stop abiding in Christ. Think about it. Why do you now love Christ when at one time before you could have cared less about Why do you now see your sin and and are broken by sin when at one time you gloried in it, maybe not outwardly, but maybe inwardly, you loved it, you didn't want to give it up? Why is that the case? Why do you now deeply love God's people and you want to be in the church anytime you can when at one time you thought the church was weird and it was annoying, boring, like when is it going to be over? You know, like when can we get back to doing whatever we want to do? Why? Why? Because the Spirit has brought you to life. You say, well, because I understood the truth. Well, how did you understand the truth? The Bible says you were dead. The Spirit brought understanding to your heart and your mind. And that is the basis. That is why you can have confidence that you'll continue to abide. Because the Spirit's got you. It's a permanent gift. God does not revoke His Spirit, and God, via His Spirit, is more concerned with you finishing well than you are concerned with you finishing well. And He's going to see to it that you finish well. Now that is extreme encouragement, extreme confidence as we get into in, into this command. But notice what this doesn't mean. Okay, it doesn't mean that we have no responsibility. To abide. Right? So we think, oh, the Spirit's got it. Not to do anything because the Spirit's got me. It's not the way it works. The Spirit enables us to abide. That's in the very next verse. John's going to pivot and now command us, you and I, to abide in Christ precisely because we can now when before we couldn't. So we are commanded to abide. That brings us to our next statement. We are commanded to abide. Verse 28. And now, children, abide in Him. Abide in Him. So, precisely because of the Spirit's abiding, because we've been made children, notice he says that, we're children now, now we are called upon to to actively abide in Christ. Now, we're going to spend most of our time here, under this point, so don't get get anxious when we're running out of time, okay? So, I want to spread this out a bit, because John just... He drops this command, and he assumes we know what it means. Okay? Because he's written an entire gospel, the Gospel of John, that has unpacked this concept in great depth. And he assumes his audience understands what he means. So he just drops this command and moves forward. But unfortunately for us, we don't have that kind of background in the Gospel of John, at least most of us don't. So I want to slow down and ask some questions here. All right. So, what is abiding? What does that mean? When John commands us to abide, what is he saying? Because a lot of people have said a lot of different things about this word. Okay. Here's how I would define it, with some help, a little bit of help from others. Okay. I would define abiding as a persevering dependence. Just, you don't want to write that whole thing down. Get those two words. You got it. All right. A persevering dependence on Christ for spiritual life and sustenance. And it results in an increasingly fruitful life. So what is it? At its heart, at its core, is dependence. Dependence. If you want one word, even if we just whittle it down. Dependence on Jesus. And it's a dependence that perseveres. It hangs on. It doesn't forsake Jesus. It keeps depending on Jesus. It keeps coming back to Him in confession and repentance. It keeps seeking to obey Him. It it, it gains ground. There's a dependence on Christ for spiritual life and sustenance, nourishment. And this results in an increasingly fruitful life. Alright, so I want us to start there with this definition And then let's let's spread this out a little bit, okay? What is abiding? I think it's that. It's a dependency. The believer is now brought into a dependent relationship with Christ. So if that's what it is, well, how do we do it? How do we abide? And this is where we're going to use the Gospel of John to really really see this definition and then kind of flesh it out a, a bit. So if you would, turn back to John 6, 56. Keep your finger, well, don't keep your finger here we're going to be in John for just a minute. John 6. And we could set we could say this, how do we abide? Well, there's a couple ways that that this works itself out in the gospel of John. And I just want to again spread these out for you and then we'll kind of synthesize, all right? How do we abide? Well, initially, we see that abiding, we abide by receiving and appropriating Christ's person and work. So they're like, what, is that? what does that mean? It's like a mouthful, okay? By receiving and believing, appropriating to our own selves who Jesus is and what he's done. Okay, so that, that is abiding in the, in the very first stage, like how we come to Jesus. We come believing in Him. We come receiving from Him what He's done. We come empty-handed. We don't have anything. So we have to fundamentally receive from Him and appropriate His person and work. And He says this in John 6, 56. So if we go back to verse 52, He says, The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, and drinks my blood what abides in me that's our word and I in him whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me Jesus is saying well, what what does that mean well his body and his blood are what Jesus gives on behalf of his people on the cross it's the if you fast forward to the the um, Last Supper, or the, the last Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples, he explains this. He talks about how he's giving his body to be broken for, for them, in their, on their behalf, giving their, his blood as a it, especially, essentially, his blood is the offering of a new sacrifice that's going to open up the doors to the new covenant for the people of God. It's all centers on him. There's no, there's no way to get it unless you appropriate him, unless you, in his words here, kind of dramatic words, you eat and drink. You eat his, his body, you drink his blood. Meaning you, you receive and appropriate his person and work. Okay? So according to John, that's what abiding means. Abiding involves receiving and appropriating Jesus to yourself. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood, alright? It also looks like remaining dependent upon his words. Alright? Remaining dependent on his words. And you can flip over to John 8, verse 31 for this. Jesus says there, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what are we abiding in here? We're abiding in his word. Abiding means to, to remain dependent on his words. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Disciples abide in his words. So abiding then would would mean remaining dependent on the words of Christ. And he gives us some results there. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. It'll be transformative for you to know, believe, and yield to, to depend on Jesus' words and the words of of truth, scriptures, truth. We think about yielding to his promises, knowing his promises, yielding to his promises against what we think and feel and what seems right to us. We think about trembling in his warnings. We think about heeding his commands. Like that's what it looks like to depend on his words versus your own assessment of things. So he says we abide by remaining dependent on his words and then finally we abide by keeping his command. And particularly the command to love. If you turn back, or turn over to John 15. John 15, verse 10, this is the classic abide passage where he brings in this beautiful imagery of of Jesus as the vine. We are his branches, and we abide in the vine. And so we receive nourishment from the vine, and fruit is produced via that nourishment in the vine. This is kind of getting up to the, our first two points here. But he takes it further in, in John 15, in verse 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Another way of saying abiding in him. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. So, keeping the commands of Christ, and particularly look in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Particularly that command. As we bend out the love that we've been shown. As we learn to love like, like we've been loved. Sacrificially. At great cost to ourselves. Or even people that don't deserve it. As we learn to love, that's abiding. We're keeping his commands. And that's, that's again, part of this expansive abide concept. Does that make sense? So we come receiving and appropriating Christ's person and work. We come depending on his words. And what does that produce? Fruit. It produces obedience. So, getting back to our definition, it's a a dependence on Christ for spiritual life and sustenance, and it results in an increasingly fruitful life, here described as keeping His commands. Now, this is not perfect. This is an ongoing thing. We grow in it, but that's the essence of abiding. All right? Does it make sense? I'm going to keep fleshing this out, okay? So, I'm just giving you categories, helping you see it in Scripture, so you're not taking my word for it. All right, now, what does this look like in real time you might think okay great clay like that's helpful so let's keep going well I want to give you an illustration and then I want to give you some practical uh, practical advice okay what does this look like in real time let's think about in somebody's life well there are lots of examples that we could pull from from other people who've lived other Christians who've gone before us who've modeled this really well Um, but one of the most encouraging to me has been the life of Hudson Taylor how many of you know him? Raise your hand. Know who he is? Heard of him? Yeah, Hudson Taylor. He's known for his expansive work in China. Evangelized China, planted churches in China, trained pastors, endured all kinds of suffering, and the fruitfulness of his life was undeniable. And so, if you want a book, a short read on this, you can see Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. Is what it's called. But even though his fruit was undeniable, like what he accomplished was incredible. When I read this, the thing that that struck me the most about Hudson Taylor is actually what other people said about him, what they experienced when they connected with him for any length of time. I'm going to read you an excerpt from a pastor who had connected with Hudson Taylor. He had Hudson Taylor in his home, and he let him stay there for a while. Hudson Taylor was 60 years old. And here's what this pastor said about Hudson Taylor in his extended experience with him. Quote, he was an object lesson in quietness. He drew from the bank of heaven every farthing of his daily income. My peace I give unto you. Whatever did not agitate the Savior or ruffle his spirit was not to agitate him. The serenity of the Lord Jesus concerning any matter and at its most critical moment was his ideal and practical possession. He knew nothing of rush or hurry or quivering nerves or vexation of spirit. He knew that there is a peace passing all understanding and that he could not do without it. So I'm in the study. You are in the big spare room, I said to Mr. Taylor at length. You are occupied with millions, I with tens. So a little background here is he, for those of you who don't know who he is, he managed China Inland Mission with literally thousands of pastors. And it was a very difficult time in China. So a lot was going on there, a ton of persecution, a ton of heartache. So he says, you are occupied with millions, meaning the believers in China, I with tens, his church, where he was at. Your letters are pressingly important, mine have comparatively little moment. Yet, I am worried and distressed while you are always calm. Do tell me what makes the difference. My dear McCartney, he replied, the peace you speak of is, in my case, more than a delightful privilege. It is a necessity. I could not possibly get through the work I have to do without the peace of God which patheth, passeth all understanding, keeping my heart in mind. Now, this is just back to Mr. McCartney, pastor. Says, that was my chief experience of Mr. Taylor. Are you in a hurry? Are you flurried? Are you distressed? Look up. See the man in glory. Let the face of Jesus shine upon you, the wonderful face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he, Jesus, is he worried or distressed? There is no care on his brow, no least shade of anxiety, yet, The affairs are his as much as yours. Talking about the affairs of your life. There's as much his as they are yours, and there's no shade of worry or anxiety. He, and now he's talking about Hudson Taylor. Here was a man, almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. Oh, the pile of letters, any one of which might contain news of death, lack of funds, of riots, or serious trouble. Yet all were opened, read, and answered with the same tranquility. Christ, His reason for peace, His power for calm. Dwelling in Christ, He drew upon His very being and resources in the midst of and concerning the matters in question. And He did this by an attitude of faith, a simple, simple, as it was continuous. It was that true abiding of John 15. That was from a pastor's experience with this man, Hudson Taylor. A very helpful read and just an expose of even how he came to understand what abiding meant, because he didn't always do this. The the travail of his soul how he began to understand it, the tremendous suffering that brought him into those experiences, and how he learned to humble himself and simply depend on Christ. So how can you and I, normal people, cultivate this kind of dependence? Hudson Taylor, if you were here, would say, he's just as weak as you are. And because he knows how weak he is, therefore he has to depend. That's all he has. So how can we cultivate dependence Uh, Practically. Let me give you some ways to do this. That we probably know, but I want to bring it all together for you under this concept of abiding in Jesus. Okay? So number one, by prioritizing church gatherings in the life of the body. we're talking about abiding like what what do you, what do you mean why are you, why are you talking about the church by prioritizing the church gatherings and the life of the body i think if john were here this is one of the things he would talk to us about because he knows that the way the church the way the, the, the lord of the church structures the church the place where this spirit that we have that been anointed with is most manifested is in the gathered church and in all of the things that Christ has told us to do in the church, it all serves to help us cultivate dependence on Jesus. So let's think them through. Through preaching, all right? Through preaching. Christ has ordained the public preaching and expositing and the reading of the scriptures as one of the primary ways he speaks to his people. If you just think about that, for thousands of years, the church did not have personal Bibles. So how are they sustained? Through the public reading, the public proclamation of God's Word, week in and week out. Sometimes pastors would give a sermon a day. John Calvin would give a sermon a day before they went to work. This means then our abiding, our depending on Jesus will be dramatically enhanced as we sit under faithful preaching as much as we can. We'll learn about Christ, we'll learn His words, we'll have guidance on how they apply. Sermons provide you with all kinds of material to meditate on, dig deeper with, during your personal quiet times. And then on top of that, we all grow in our personal Bible reading as we we sit under good preaching, as they model good Bible study habits for us. They're going to help us map out what believing particular truth really means in our lives, in the the minutia, like abiding. And so the public proclamation of his word is 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 a great way a vital way that we grow in our, in our dependence on Jesus. And that, that should merge with your personal times in the Lord, your personal meditations and things, okay? Through singing, I don't have these up there, sorry. Through singing, second. So, how so? Well, as, as faithful elders select and sing theologically rich songs, these songs you'll learn and they'll stick with you. They remind you of the truth, of Christ's words, Right? And it gives expression to the spirit-wrought desires in your heart. Truths in these songs are Christ's own words and is a way of remaining dependent upon Him and not ourselves. Alright? So through singing, in addition to preaching. Also, through corporate prayer. Think about this. Through corporate prayer. As we receive prayer and we join in the pastoral prayers, we are all interceding together for one another. What are we praying for? Ultimately, we're praying that we would depend on the Lord. Produce fruit, right? How often does the Lord answer these prayers for your good, causing you to be more dependent upon himself because you were there and you interacted? We may not know until heaven, but being here, receiving these prayers and praying alongside of God's people is certainly spiritually better for you than not. Right? Alright, so through corporate prayer. Number four, through the ordinances. Through the ordinances. Baptism. Okay, it's one of them. Baptism reminds us of the glory of our conversion, even um, as we watch the conversions of others. It reminds us that we came to him empty-handed, totally dependent, and it encourages us to rejoice in the work of Christ in the life of other people. Right? And similarly, in the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance, (laughs) we're feasting on Christ's body and his blood, right? We're drinking his blood, so to speak. And what, is it, what do we mean? Okay, what's the point of the Lord's Supper? Together, we're, we're gathering together. We're celebrating it together. We're one body. And we're saying, Jesus, we depend only on your death for our reconciliation with God. That's all we're depending on is your death. For our reconciliation with God. That's it. For our entrance into the covenant. Only your death. This means then that the Supper is a way to functionally remain dependent on Jesus. Jesus has commanded us to, to, to observe the Supper, Lord's Supper. Why? Because it keeps us dependent on his grace and nothing else. So, okay, so through ordinances, through relationships. okay, The church is the context where we connect personally with pastors and other church members. It's the place where we can open up our lives to these people, where we can know and be known and really find help. And this goal in the help is... is to help each other become more dependent on Jesus. Like, that's the whole point. And counseling and shepherding and all that interpersonal discipleship. Why? Why do we do it all? Is to help you depend on Christ. To trust Him more. To rejoice in Him more fully. To become more fruitful. That's abiding 101. So, we help each other to abide as we disciple and serve each other. So, we gotta prioritize a church gathering. Gotta move quickly through this, all right? And that's an incredibly vital way to abide in Christ. So, on the flip side, take inventory, right? Are you struggling to abide in Christ? How involved are you in the church? Are you a member? Do you come? Are you open and honest? Do you pursue relationships? Do you really meditate on what you're being taught? Are you discipled by other people? Are you offering yourself Up to them and opening yourself up to them? Now, okay, beyond all that, beyond the corporate dynamic, there's also the obvious individual dynamic that we all think about when we think about abiding, right? Christ is personal. He abides with each one of us who have believed in him. He knows us deeply, wants us to grow in reciprocating that depth. So, what are some ways that we can continue to cultivate this, all right? By carving out specific times to personally abide in Christ. This is not rocket science, But it's amazing how we can neglect this. Carving out specific times to abide in Christ. Okay, Where you're saying, okay, well that that makes sense. But what am I doing when I'm abiding in Christ? Well, what does this time involve? give you a couple things. It looks like reminding yourself of your dependence and your need for him. Right? Because we come out deceived. Open our eyes deceived. Thinking we don't need him. Anybody else feel that way? what i battle all right it looks like reminding ourselves that we need we we want to depend and need him so we articulate that to him in prayer number two looks like hearing from his truthful perspective via his word so whether whether you're meditating on the sermon that you just heard whether you're meditating on something you're reading you're working through passages of scripture that's great you're meditating on something specific in the bible that you're working on you need his truthful perspective. You need his words. Remember, to abide means to abide in his words. So we need his perspectives. Number two. Number three. We need to roll any anxieties or burdens that we have to him. Okay? Think of the Hudson Taylor example. He's, he's quiet, meaning there's there's serenity. Why? Because he's entrusting himself situationally to the Lord. So what are those burdens? We need to, we need to roll those over, those anxieties and burdens that we have upon the Lord, number three. Number four, it looks like yielding our will to the Lord's will for that day. Be saying, okay, Lord, I'm pursuing these things, but your will be done. I want to pursue these things and, and humble my heart, make it pliable and ready to what maybe the Lord may have in store that might thwart my plans. Your will, not mine. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It looks like number five, treasuring up his love for me and his promises toward me okay i am i am forgiven i am in a relationship with the lord based on him and what he's done for me so i want to remind myself of that i don't want to be, i don't want the, i don't want there to be doubts about that as i'm going into the day and I, whatever i need to confess to clean my conscience i want to treasure up his love for me and his promises toward me number 6 i want to pray for specific fruit that I want to see the Lord accomplish in and through me. Right? So you think through your day. You think about what are the things you're going to hit that day and what what areas do you want to see the Lord just light on fire and really produce some fruit in? What are the challenges that that look at you in the day and and the, the in your areas of responsibility? So that's like laying my laying my day out before the Lord. Specific fruit that I want to see him work work in. In those areas, and then number seven, this, I'm just giving you some ideas. Okay, this is not comprehensive. Reviewing the areas that he's helping me to work on, so areas that he's discipling me in, um, that I'm weak in, that I'm that he's taking me to the mat on because I'm not I'm not getting those down. I'm hard headed. He's about to put the bit and bridle in my mouth, you know, in the Psalm 32 language. The areas I'm trying to work on to to be more fruitful to him. I will review those areas he's helping me work on, asking for help in those areas. Uh, maybe find those specific passages that I'm working on memorizing in those areas and bring them back to mind. Okay, so that's uh, carving out time—specific times that you can do this. Okay, so Daniel did it three times a day. It's not law; just it's just practice. Okay, I like to think through—I um, like to think about it as sort of bookends of the day, like the beginning and ending of the day. Not that it's like some some drawn-out time but just an inventory time a time where I come before and sort of reconvene with the Lord. So, carving out time to abide in Christ is so important. And this is not just I need to read my Bible and pray. It's dependency. Like that you don't you're not just checking boxes. You are hearing his words and depending on him in prayer. Rolling your anxieties on him, receiving from him, from his word. Okay? This is carving out specific times. Because I think we get confused, right? We just think like I just I need to I need to my Bible's a pill, I just need to take it. And it's like, no, you need to you need to believe it. You need to act like it's true. And you need it like more than you need to err. Okay? So that that's the issue. Alright? We need to carve out that time. And number three, by learning to live in the presence of God. By learning to live in the presence of God. By learning to live in His presence during the day. Seeing His hand, seeing His involvement in all that is there in your day. Both the good and the challenging. Things you planned and the things you didn't. They are from His sovereign hand. His good hand. So don't be the functional atheist who does their ten minute devotional and then operates the rest of the day as though God does not exist. He doesn't enter your thoughts. He doesn't enter your aspirations. He doesn't enter your desires. Like It's just like he's, doesn't, he's not there. Learn to live in his presence. Interpreting all of life from him and in him. So what do, what do I mean? What does that look like? All right, well, you're, you got your plan, and then bam, there's an interruption, or bam, there's an inconvenience, or bam, there's a change of plan. How do you respond to that? That's from God. God sent that. And that is a moment for you to abide, for you to, for you to choose, am I going to yield in that moment to what the Lord has and not bite that person's head off or uh, inwardly resent them because they just came to my office the third time in a row, or whatever it is, and to say that is that was from God to me And I want to yield to him. That's what Hudson Taylor was doing. Each each letter he opened, right, was a new opportunity to yield to the Lord, whatever that letter contained about the hardship of those missionaries. Okay, a friend sins against you during the day. They hurt you from God. What are you gonna do? You're gonna abide? You're gonna trust that that was sent to you? Not because God's mean or hateful, but because he wants you to learn how to forgive like he forgives? Because he wants you to learn how to maybe speak honestly and transparently to that person who hurt you and bring them along and say, hey, or maybe he wants you to learn to overlook sin. So you don't have to confront every little thing that offends you. Okay, there's lots of things the Lord's doing. He's there. Or how about positively, when a friend is thoughtful, they serve you, they encourage you in an incredible way. That's God. God sent that friend. God gave that encouragement. So it's a it's, an, it's a moment to abide. When you need to work hard on an assignment, and you have no energy left to do it. It's from God. Like, that's an opportunity to abide. That's an opportunity to yield your will to his. And say, give me strength. I need you. I can't do this on my own, but, Lord, I know it's good to, to, to be disciplined. I know it's good to, to just put one foot in front of the other. This is how I cultivate endurance, and so help me. I'm going to put my hands down in faith. Even though I don't feel it, you're abiding. So I can just keep going, okay? Getting a good grade on a project, that's a moment to abide. Getting a bad grade on a project, failing a a presentation, that's a moment to abide. Like these are all opportunities of what I mean of don't live like an atheist. Learn to live dependently in the presence of God. And take every moment to, to bring that to bear, okay? And then, I've got a lot here, guys. I'm just skimming off the top, all right? By repenting of bad fruit quickly, you don't have to wait till your morning or evening time uh, to repent. When you sin, but repenting of the bad fruit moments in your day. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> when you're when your will is crossed and you become a dragon. You know? And it's like, oh gosh, I just I just exploded, or I just sinned, you know? Or you're overwhelmed and you just like cave to the anxiety. You have a panic attack, whatever happens, I don't know. But in the moment when you've blown it. You don't have to carry around the guilt all day. You go to the Lord, confessing, repenting, returning to the love of Jesus in that moment. That's abiding. I like to think of it as like realigning my heart with Christ's in that moment instead of like barreling on in guilt and unbelief and just continuing to wreak havoc in the day, you know? Because I'm not aligning myself and getting back in independence in into a dependent relationship with him. Getting behind him in discipleship instead of getting out in front of him and barreling ahead with my agenda. It's like, no, 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 no. I've got to come back because I was barreling ahead, like Peter. I've got to come back and realign, get behind him. And what's beautiful about this is we always have the capacity for joy. We always have the capacity for contentment. We always have the capacity for a restedness, for patience, for love, because we're always in Christ. Even when we sin. We're never outside of him. Man, a lot we could say there. Let's keep going. Uh, by being intentional, okay, it's the way we practically cultivate dependence. By being intentional in obedience to Christ, we grow in our abiding as we obey his commands, particularly the command to love. So, think through all the spheres of your life. Think through your church relationships, your school relationships, your family relationships, your work relationships. What would it look like to love these people? For Christ's sake. Be specific. Often it looks like a change in your attitude, a sensitivity to what the Lord is is doing or might be doing in their lives, seeking how we might be used by him in, in their lives. So all I'm going to say there, just be intentional about obedience. And that's a way to abide, practically way to cultivate dependence. So we've, we've taken some time to spread this out, look at what it looks like. Um, we'll, we'll wrap up our final two points quickly here, uh, our, our four statements. So we're, we're enabled to abide, we're commanded to abide, we are incentivized to abide here in this text. Verse 28, he says, if you flip back over to 1 John, sorry, I'm in John 15. If you flip back over to 1 John, we're incentivized here in the text to abide. So, he says, abide in him so that, in order that, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him and shame in his coming. So, why should we abide? John says, because if we do, we'll have incredible boldness at the return of Jesus. We won't be ashamed. We won't shrink back from his coming. So, if Christ returned right now, like right now, at this very moment, and you stood before him, how would your heart respond? Would you run forward to embrace him? Would you be relieved that the struggle is over? Would you be overjoyed that he's finally here, excited to finally be in the presence of your greatest friend, the friend whom you have learned to trust, to pour your heart out to, the friend that you've seen answer your prayers and use you to advance his kingdom and produce fruit? That's the boldness that John's talking about. Or would your heart respond in terror, in deep regret, Ashamed that you'd spent so much time, so much energy and devotion on sinful pursuits? Or would you be startled because you're living like a functional atheist without much thought ever of his return? Or of what he might say to you if he returns, when he returns? Or would you be secretly disappointed because he didn't allow you to experience something on this side of the old creation, like marriage or kids, or a job that you've been preparing for, or fill in the blank? that shrinking back in shame that is coming. But get this, to the one who is learning to abide in Jesus, the one who's learning to depend on him moment by moment, there will be a growing anticipation, a growing boldness in their heart to meet the Lord, to see him coming on the clouds, and excitement to stand before him. Why? Because this kind of heart is secure in the Father's love. This kind of heart knows that it's not perfect, but its desire is to yield its will to Christ's will because it's doing it every day. It's repenting every day. It's grieved by its continual hardness, but it daily tastes of the mercy of Christ, so it anticipates that mercy upon his return. It's it's got some foretastes of joy, and it longs to be just unshackled from the, the sin that prevents it. There is a holy familiarity to the friendship that grows as we abide, and so we are bold when He appears. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? To be bold when Christ appears. So do you want that kind of boldness the return of Jesus? John says abide. That's our great incentive right here in this passage. And something else happens when we abide. It says we are assured and we abide. Right now, we have assurance here and now that we belong to the Lord, and we abide. Look in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. His point here is that for people who practice righteousness, that's another way of saying abiding in Christ these folks can be assured of something right now in the present, right now. That they have already been born of God. In other words, he's saying our abiding or our obedience brings assurance that we belong to God. Literally, that we're his progeny, like we've been born from him. Now, note what he's not saying. He's not saying that when we practice righteousness, when we abide, we become born of God. It's the other way around. He's saying it reveals that we've already been born of God. It shows we have been brought forth by Him in new life with His Spirit abiding within us. The Spirit who is working in us to abide and produce the fruit of righteousness. So if you're sitting here and you're angsting about whether or not you're in in the Lord, you're born of Him, and whether or not you're abiding, if you go to Him to abide, that's proof that He's already working in your heart. right? He's already bringing you forth as His own child. Now, as John brings this idea of being born of God up here, it's the first time he talks about this concept in the letter. And he's going to really start developing the significance of what it means to be in God's family, to be his child, to be God's offspring in the next chapter. Um, But we're going to stop here. We're going to get into that next time after the devoted conference because I'm already over time. (laughs) Um, But that's going to be so sweet. He actually commands us in chapter 3 to stop and behold The love of God toward us. Um, It's going to be so good. So, do you see why this instruction to abide is so central for John? Do you see how it's going to guard us if we do this from so many evils on all sides, right? And it's going to produce eternal fruit if we do it. It makes sense why he included it here in his, his field guide for us to help us navigate this world. So, my encouragement to you as we close is just to think back through this part about cultivating dependence to cultivating this relationship and make a note of something that you want to start doing in your relationship with Christ. Ask somebody else what they've found to be helpful for them to cultivate dependence on Jesus. Like, talk about this with one another and other people that are out ahead of you. But as you strive, as you work hard to depend on Jesus, remember, remember, you are his child. And he wants intimacy more than you do. And so much so, that he died to make it reality. He died to bring you to himself. So draw near to him, abide in him in humble confidence, confidence of his love toward you as his child. All right? Let's pray. Father, as we we think about these concepts, as we think about abiding, we are aware of how frail we are in our relationship with you how weak, how we long to abide better, um, abide more, abide more, more consistently. And I pray that um, as we're just thinking about this together, as we're ending a message like this, that you would cause your spirit to encourage our hearts, that we would see the glory of your love for us in Christ, and that that would motivate us to, to come to you as our Father, to pray to you, to ask you for things, to be transparent with you in our relationship. Help us be disciplined in that. Um, and to be encouraged that the Spirit is already at work in us, abiding in us. and We want fruit to remain. Uh, We want our fruit to abide in this life for your glory, um, for the demise of Satan, and that more people would come to know you and that you would be glorified. So we pray for that in Christ's name.